This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. 
Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Tim Dietz. Now, Tim worked as a volunteer firefighter and then career, transitioning out into the mental health field and then working with fellow first responders. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, the horrendous traumatic event where he lost his son, his own mental health journey, the evolution of first responders' mental health, firefighter retreats, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Tim Dietz. Enjoy. Well, Tim, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for your patience. We were supposed to record this at one o'clock. I called you and said, hey, I'm an Englishman and my team is playing this afternoon. Have you any flexibility? You were good enough to push us back a little bit. I watched England beat Wales 3-0. So that was awesome. So firstly, thank you for your flexibility. I've never asked someone that before. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. It's my honor to be on your show. Thank you. And no worries on the on the delay because it allowed me to watch the U.S. play Iran uh, this afternoon as well. So yeah, that was, they almost they almost got 1-1 if it wasn't for that, that defender. That was a nail-biter. Yeah, we don't make it easy. Absolutely not. All right, well then, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I'm uh, in a small community. Well, I'm between two small communities in Oregon, uh, between the communities of Sherwood and Newburgh, kind of in Oregon wine country. And we're about 30 minutes south of, of Portland, Oregon. So I would love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in Oregon City, Oregon, um, in a hospital that no longer exists. That says a little bit about how, how old I am. Um, my dad, uh, was a, a farmer, uh, raised by a farmer, um, and then kind of sold insurance on the side. My mom, um, was a school teacher, but when I was growing up, she was a substitute school teacher. So she wasn't always, I mean, she was home most, most of the time. I have two older sisters, um, that are a little bit much older than me. So I think my First sister that's older than me is is six years older than two two more years for my other sister. So um, I'm kind of am the baby of the family, so to speak. Um, so that's a little bit about me growing up. So I grew up on on farms, yeah, and uh, learned I guess how to how to work hard and and do things right. So I grew up on a farm as well, and sadly. The very first kind of time I'd even heard the word suicide was one of the farmers in our area had hung himself in his barn. And they, I 
the from thing from what I understand, he kind of hung there for a bit before they found him. Tragic. Now you fast forward, you know, 40 years. I'm on the other side. The fire service have got this different perspective, all these, these amazing people I've interviewed, this different understanding of mental health. And what I hear is the farming industry actually struggles greatly with mental health and has some of the highest suicide rates of all the professions. So have you had any experience either looking back at your father's own mental health and or at least the profession itself? Um, I certainly can understand where suicide would come from in, in the farming industry. I mean, your your whole life is based on, you know, the rain and the heat and, and things that you absolutely have no control over. Um, I never even thought of that. My my dad, um, my dad came from a very uh, abusive childhood, um, and we didn't know this until his bio mom died, who was the abuser. But uh, in in hindsight, I'm very fortunate that my dad was an amazing amazing dad and had learned to kind of stuff all that stuff down until he couldn't anymore when his bio mom died. Um, but suicide, I, his mental health really. His whole thing was he, he he stayed busy, right? And in hindsight, again, I, I realize he's staying busy because if he slows down, he's got to think about think about stuff. This is one of the the things that firefighters do as well. We stay busy; we don't have to think about stuff going on in our life. So, and, and and to be honest with you, James, I didn't even realize until I retired. So I retired at the end of two thousand and eight. Got into the mental health side of the fire service. I didn't even realize um, the suicide rate in our occupation until I retired and started working with these men and, and men, women, um, which is really my motivation. It's, it's unacceptable what these jobs can do to us if we're not paying attention because the suicide rate is really out of control in, in the first response professions. Absolutely. Well, just at a tangent, seeing as you can open the door there, I think one of the least recognized areas of someone who's struggling is exactly what you just said, busyness. And for most of my career, there would be the term overtime whore. There was always that guy or girl that would just lap up all the overtime they could. And you'd be like, well, don't you want to go home? You know, haven't you got kids and a wife to see? Now, again, when I look back, I'm like, oh, there, as you said, there's a void there. Some people fill it with alcohol. Some people fill it, you know, with, with positive things too, but some with other things. And some of them simply keep working so they don't have the time to think about what they really need to be thinking about. I agree. You, you, that, that's, that's exactly right, and that's one of the what are the what we call the maladaptive coping mechanisms that do. And it is, you know, it is it is um, staying busy. It's counterphobic behavior. That's doing risky behavior without thought of consequences. That's uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, other addictive uh, disorders. That's token attempts to get help. Well, I tried a therapist once. That doesn't work. They don't understand what I'm doing, so I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. Or, or uh, you know, I tried those those pills the doctor gave me for a, a couple of days. I didn't like them. I quit taking them. Um, and those are all ways that we try to handle it ourselves because that's the way we're wired, right? We're wired to help people, not receive help. And part of what I'm trying to do is is change that way of thinking. Uh, change the culture, so to speak, on how we think about self-care and, and get into these careers. Now, some of these kind of multi-generational trauma elements occur because there's a repeating of behavior. So, for example, if there's an abusive, you know, parent, then it might be, make an abusive child, hurt people, hurt people. I'm assuming that wasn't the case in, in your area. So your dad was was a victim of, of a predator, basically, a, a physical predator. What did he do that, that created that buck stopping there rather than passing on to you and your siblings? I 
I and that's a great question, and you know I've actually thought about this a, lo- a lot. Uh, he certainly stopped, you know, the, the the cycle, so to speak. And I think James, the way he did it was he just kept busy. I mean, farming—you you can work from sunup to sundown, and there's plenty of things to even when the sun goes down when you're farming. Um, so sometimes he would go to his office and, you know, and sell insurance. He'd come back uh, to the farm and he'd go out into his shop and he would stay out there until my mom would call him in for dinner. Um, and then on, on, and I would, you know, and he would keep me busy on weekends and, and after school, I would, I would work out there with him. And boy, it, it's, you, you just kept busy. And I think that's how he handled it. And it, on, on the other side of it, because of those experiences he had, um, and I, he didn't. I'm assuming he didn't want to pass that forward. I I really had a long leash, you know, on weekends and stuff as I was growing up, and I feel kind of bad now. Um, but and I got away with a lot of stuff that may not have normally have gotten away with um, if my dad had called me out on it. But he was probably so afraid of, I don't know, disciplining me, maybe. So yeah, we you know I think about that I think about that all the time because he was an amazing guy and and um, he certainly did not pass that on to, to my to me or my or my sister. But I'm I'm you know I'm assuming that might have been a struggle for him as well. Yeah, well I mean that's that's a very interesting point. You know if you have only experienced that one version of discipline. I mean I've had that. I grew up being smacked and beaten and stuff. Um, and you know, had the same thing in my mind as, as so many people do. Well, it didn't do me any harm. And then you take a step back and go, <laughs> or did it <laughs> actually? And I just, I changed it. You know, I did the little pat on the leg and I've talked about this on here before. Then I did the timeout till my son called me on it and reversed the whole thing. But basically it makes it useless then. And then he was old enough to really just sit down and explain either his actions were kind or they were unkind. And that really does carry over to how he plays with other kids, to manners, to all these things. And that's what I did from, I think it was like three up till he's 15 now. Um, and you, it is a kind of scary thing because we all assume that our parents have it figured out. And so you just do what they do. But some people are fortunate enough to be able to have the hindsight step back and go, yeah, I don't think they were completely right. And then, like you said, but then the, the daunting task is how do you find what is right? How do you discover your own version when really you've been taught the wrong ways? Absolutely. I, I agree. Sometimes we have to. Uh, so, you know, going back to, go back to my dad, his dad, who was a, a farmer as well, um, when he was growing up, figured out that his wife was, was being really ab- abusive. And so they got a divorce. This would have been in the 30s. Um, and so my dad pretty much was raised by a single dad on a farm. He They had 5,000 acres in, in central Oregon. And, in, you know, thinking about that, there's probably not a, a lot of I love you's and a lot of hand-holding in that household with my dad growing up. And so for me, watching where, where this came into play was in graduate school. I had to do a look at family of origin stuff. And... Suddenly, it made perfect sense why I hated going to the in-laws and my wife hated going to the in-laws. So in my house, when I grew up, my dad, I don't think I ever heard him tell my mom he loved her. I knew they loved each other, but he didn't hear that growing up. Never saw him hold my mom's hand. I knew they loved each other, and they were married like 54 years when, when he passed away. But that's what I brought into my relationship with my wife. 
Um, I never saw those things. And my dad and I, my dad was very quiet. He and I could sit in a room, you know, and look out over an alfalfa field and watch elk out there all day long and not say a word, but we just loved being in that room by ourselves. Where my wife and I, where my wife comes from a family, um, she's there's six kids um, and her dad was in the military. So she's an Air Force brat and they traveled across the country. She said she's been in 48 states before she was in fifth grade, traveling in the van from Air Force Base to Air Force Base, where everybody in the van's talking at the same time. And that's what's normal to my wife. My wife thinks if we're being quiet, something's wrong. Well, I come from a house where you don't talk. You don't have to talk. We just It's just good being in the same room. And that was quite a challenge uh, for a while until I figured out, we both had to figure out how we're going to make this work. Right, just just two very different family dynamics, and and as you, um, me growing up, that was the norm. That's what I thought healthy relationships looked like. My wife, even to this day, if we're not talking, she breaks the silence. It drives her nuts. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I can see how those two dynamics would would be uh, jarring <laughs> at Christmas time, depending on which oh, direction absolutely. you went. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, you obviously were a physical grown up on a farm. And I, you know, as a child, I would come into school looking exhausted and they would assume I'd be playing video games. I was actually been, you know, lambing and mucking out stables uh, and taking care of yeah. chickens. So <laughs> what about the, the athletic side? Was it purely the farm that got you fit or were you playing some sports as well? I played, I played a lot of sports. I played a lot of, a lot of baseball. I did a lot of wrestling uh, in school. And then uh, what about career aspirations? When you're going through the school ages, were you thinking of the fire service or was there something else in your mind? I I wasn't thinking about the fire service until uh, that TV show Emergency came on, Rescue 51, and that hooked me. Um, that came out in the 70s, and I watched that show. It used to be on primetime, which was on Saturday nights uh, in, in, in this country. And, boy, that was a big deal, Saturday nights. I'm home, I'm watching emergency, and that's exactly what I wanted to do, and that's that's what I ended up doing. So I know that you began in the volunteer world, is that correct? 1979, I was a volunteer, yes. Okay, so walk me through that, because I know obviously that department factors into a little later in your story as well. Oh, yeah, so, um, yeah, so the community I grew up in, with, you couldn't be a volunteer until you're 21 years old, and so soon as, as soon as I was 21, I... I Wanted to do it so bad, so I joined the volunteer fire department. Um, learned everything I could there. Then I started testing out. Um, got hired with a different fire department in 1981, um, and worked for them for nearly 20 years as a as a, as a shift captain. I was a paramedic on an engine company, and then um, towards the end of my career, the last eight years of my career, I got hired to a lot bigger fire department. Um, which actually had a behavioral health program. And that's kind of where I was starting to lean at that, that point in, in my career and in my life. And I got hired there and uh, they put me in training and behavioral health because the chief of that organization was very large, very large, um, knew that even though we had a, an EAP free counseling to firefighters and their families, firefighters don't often go to an EAP because we don't feel like we want to talk to anybody that doesn't know what we do for a living. And so I became like an internal EAP there. And that's how I kind of finished out my career and, and just just love that. So starting at the volunteer side, um, 
I think one of the least acknowledged elements of volunteer firefighting is, I mean, of course, there there are some some cons, you know, that the standards can be lower and those kind of things, depending on which type of volunteer department it is. Yeah. However, I think one of the least acknowledged elements is I've always lived in a different town that I've worked. So even though when I go to work, I'm reminded of all the horrible shit, I can yeah. at least move over a city or two and kind of get away from it where my children are. In the volunteer world, we're not only you're not only serving in the town probably that you live, but you're also running on the people that you know, your own community. So with this lens of having worked through two career departments, what's your perspective of the volunteer, the American volunteer firefighter, the highs and the lows? Well, absolutely. The highs, so you get to help your community and you, you do get to help people that you may know. Uh, and the lows are um, you do respond on occasionally people that you know, and that's that's not fun. Um, and as a matter of fact, as we'll probably get to, um, I lost a child uh, in the 80s, and I was not a volunteer in that organization anymore, but the volunteers that I used to run around with responded on, on my son's incident. And it, it it rocked their it rocked their world. And it was in hindsight later on because I was not I was had moved out of the community. Um, I had found that, or and the, and the department that had has, was combination it was career and volunteer. And I had found out later on bumping into one of those guys that was on that call that day, and four of my friends, so to speak, didn't finish their career because of the they ran on my son, and that that really broke my heart. It really broke my heart. So yes, there's there's good and, and bad, absolutely. As a matter of fact, the, the first when I got into the professional fire services, I ended up moving to that community. And you know, after 19 years, I started to run on people that I knew because I'd been there long enough, and I I didn't like that. And that was probably one of the decisions that I started to look look get out of there. I, I don't like going out on people that I know. No. That's awful. Well, if if you want, would like to, the 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 incident with your son. It sounds like you know there were a lot of takeaways as far as you know. I'm sure the actual the 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 speed of service must have come into it in the, in the volunteer model. Um, the way that your family was treated as far as that incident. Um, so I mean, if, wherever you'd like to go, if you want to kind of walk through, you know, how old your son was and what happened, and then because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of value, whether it's the death notification and compassion or whether it's, you know, some areas that maybe we can do better in, in the, the volunteer world as well. So I'll just kind of give you the mic and, and you go where you'd like to go. Absolutely, because uh, experiences like that certainly changed, uh, <laughs> changed the whole direction of my life. Um, so, yes, it would have been it was during the holidays. Um, so right after New Year's Day, my wife and I had had bought a, a house in the community that I was working. I was a shift captain paramedic. I wanted to move closer to work. Um, so we were moving to a house. So I have two boys. One was two, one was five. And we took them to a babysitter. So during the holidays, um, we dropped them off at the babysitters. I am at the new house, which is 20, 30 minutes away, unpacking boxes. My wife is in the community um, where we're moving from, where the babysitter's at, just a few blocks away from the babysitter's. And she's packing boxes up. And then we got family members with trucks hauling stuff back and forth. Um, babysitter puts my youngest son, who's two, two years old, in, in a bathtub. And 
I don't know, gets distracted, whatever. She leaves him in there and he, and he, he drowns. And um, 911 eventually gets called. Um, he gets a fire engine, he gets an ambulance, he gets a couple of police cars. And when the firefighters show up and they quickly realize that it was my kid um, because they, they, they knew me very well. Um, one of the firefighters decides I got to go to the family home and let mom and dad know what's going on. So one of them runs to the house where my wife is at and basically says there's been a horrible uh, incident at the babysitters. You need to get over there like right now. And they came running back. Now there's a helicopter out in a, in a side field because he's going to be flown to a pediatric center in, in Portland. And as my wife tries to get into the house to be to see what's going on with her son, um, a very well-meaning young firefighter who we, we know has posted himself at the door and he thinks that he should protect her from the horrible thing going on inside because they're doing this intervention. They pulled him out of the tub, put him in a living room, and they're doing an intervention next to a Christmas tree. And he doesn't think a mom should have to see that. And, and yeah, and rightfully so, maybe. At least we thought then. But uh, my wife is pretty strong-willed and she's going to get in the house because that's where her son is, right? As most moms are. And he's he's blocking her and he says, you can't go in there. And she says, you you let me in that house. My son's in there. And he says, you don't understand. We're busy in there. You can't go in there. And they they got into a little wrestling match, right? So we're, not only where she loses, you know, I lose a son that day, but my wife's now bruised from a very well-meaning young firefighter trying to get into, into the house. So a couple takeaways from that. Number one, I figured out, you know, I got a paycheck because bad things happen to people. And that day I figured out, crap, we're not immune from that. So being on the, making the phone call someday for, for help. And so that kind of changed my perspective of that. And then about a month after that incident, my wife and I are driving through the town where this happened, where we had moved from. And I knew all the firefighters there and a firefighter is coming towards me on the highway. And I stick my arm out the the window to wave at him because I know this guy and that's when my wife who's sitting next to me looks at me and she says that's the asshole that fought with me when Justin died and that's the first I really heard of that story I did not make it to the scene that day and when she shared that story in really a lot more detail um man that that was a kick in the in in the stomach um and she looked at me and she goes you guys are all assholes she goes is that what they teach you to do is is basically fight with with people like me. And it's like, man, how do you respond to that? The, the response is, I've not been taught how to handle somebody like you. I don't know. We, they, we, we're not taught. That's that's the problem. And so when I went back to work, I had been promoted. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to get closer to work. But now I have an advantage to looking at the big picture on these medical calls we're, we're going out on. And I really, really started paying attention how we were treating not only the patient because patient care were rock stars on i started paying attention how we were treating um relatives that were present and i gotta tell you it was it was pretty disheartening um and really at no fault of ours we, we were removing people from the room if they were crying because we thought it bothered us um we were trying to avoid people giving them false hope all this stuff to for us basically for for us and that's when I thought we've got to do business differently. And that's when I went about uh, writing the, the book, Scenes of Compassion, um, to teach us to do this differently. You know, and interestingly enough, um, I, I, I started doing a lot of research on how, well, what's the right, how's the right thing? How, what's the right conversation to have with a young mom who's, who's just lost her child? 
And I started calling uh, paramedic training institutions and, and fire uh, colleges and asking them, why don't you teach us how to have these conversations? And I heard the same thing consistently across the U.S. Number one is we don't have room in the curriculum to teach that kind of stuff. That's what have been in the in the 80s. And number two was we don't want our firefighters, our paramedics shouldering other people's grief. Those are the two reasons that, that, that I was told. So that wasn't good enough for me. Uh, so I went about doing a lot of trial and error. Um, what works, what doesn't work in the field. When I was at these scenes where people were seriously injured or, or had died and the family members were there to try to come up with a better way of, of, of doing this. And that's the product, the, the Scenes of Compassion product. Um, I think it works. I'm not shouldering anybody's grief. All I'm, all I'm trying to teach you is understand where these folks are at in their life. And if we can leave an imprint that we care, even if, it, even if we're only there 20 seconds to declare somebody dead, the words I use, the way I do it, you know, whether I smile and frown, whether my hair is cold, that person's going to remember that forever. And if I can leave an imprint that somebody was in your life during that 20 seconds that cared, um, it makes me feel better. And it's, it's, it's the thing that, that I can do. Um, interestingly enough, since that book was written and probably in the last 15 years, um, Stanford School of Medicine has done research on the, the, this term compassion. And what it boils down to is if I can leave that imprint that I care in somebody's life, even at a tragedy, it forces me to work in my frontal lobes where the pleasure centers kind of hang out. And actually, I can go back to my firehouse feeling good about what I've accomplished instead of dwelling on the, tra the tragic piece of it. And so I get asked all the time, do you guys, you know, because I, I, when I travel and I teach, I use a lot of personal stories and photographs of tragedies and things like that. And I often hear... I bet your debriefings have gone through the roof, all this touchy-feely stuff you guys are doing out there in Oregon. And my response is quite the contrary. We don't do debriefings anymore because we are allowed to leave these horrible tragedies feeling good about what we were able to accomplish, and you don't debrief what feels good. Right? So, yeah, we go back to station. We talk about it. It's tough to you know to lose a child or to, you know be involved in that or you know, crashes and, and seeing people grieve. It's tough. So we talk about that, but we leave that with, this is what we were able to accomplish in that person's time of tragedy. And that feels good. They knew somebody was in their house or at that intersection that, that truly cared about what happened in our lives. And that makes us feel good. It, it And that's kind of my story. Well, firstly, I mean, it's a heartbreaking story and I'm I'm so, so sorry for your loss, but it does give you you know that buy-in as as we we revere in the fire service you know well who are you well i'm i'm a father who lost a child and uh, i you know we watched you do it the wrong way so this is very important to me yeah so with that one thing that springs to mind that i've seen in my career and i have to give it to orange county florida our protocols as far as um the the ability to just call you know to 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 you know declare, declare someone deceased on scene so that you're not prolonging not only the grief of the the family but also the expense you know the hospital stays and everything they had some excellent protocols where if you met certain criteria and you did everything that you could then you would call it there when i went to my last apartment under the same medical direction but in a theme park that declares themselves a standalone county in the state of florida <laughs> they had an absolute you know epidemic of show codes and transport transporting corpses so what have you seen as far as that 
um, lack of courage as a paramedic, as an EMT to make that call versus, you know, these showcos and, and these transporting, you know, basically dead people that we saw certainly earlier in our career? Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of work teaching people on the scene. Um, the, the, there's ways to have conversations with these people, right? And one of the things I like to use is called dosing out the news. So when I walk into somebody's house, let's say we walk into a house and grandpa is face planted on the kitchen table, unresponsive, and grandma is clinging to the phone uh, because she's unable to do the the dispatch directions to open up his airway and whatnot. And we walk into that, that house and when we walk into that house. We're going to open up the gentleman's airway and feel for a pulse. He's not going to be breathing. He's going to find none. We're going to pull him out of the chair. We're going to lay him on the kitchen floor and begin an intervention. And when we start to do that, one of us should look at this woman and say, your husband's heart's not beating. He's not breathing. And then we go to work. And now that's, that's a dose. First of all, I might say, I can't have this conversation if I remove her from the room. <laughs> She's allowed to be present. This is her house. This is my house. She has every right to be in the room as long as she doesn't interfere. Okay. So on all these calls, the, the, the loved ones are allowed to be present. Okay. So I've given her the dose. He's not breathing, doesn't have a heartbeat. And even to an elderly woman, they, they know what that means. That's, that's not a good sign. If you could look in their head, you'd see the gears start to turn as they're trying to make sense of what's going on. So we do a quick look with our with our you know EKG machine. He's in five V fine V fib. We shock him into uh, a systole, which is we want more squiggle, not less. Yeah, and then we start doing you know the we start getting on this guy with CPR and everything else. I might turn to this woman and say, "Ma'am, your husband's heart did not respond to the electricity, and now I'm back to work. So now she's got not breathing, no heartbeat, didn't respond to the electricity, and you know what? Crap on TV. They always respond to electricity, right? So this isn't going well. So the magical medics, we get a tube into his lungs. We get an IV going, start breathing for him. We're doing CPR. Let's say we're 15, 20 minutes into this. He's still asystolic, right? It's not going well. I might turn to this woman and say, ma'am, your husband's heart is not responding to anything we're trying right now. And now I'm back to work. But I'm giving those bits and pieces for her to, to, to work on as, as we're doing our job. The first or the first county that I was a paramedic in, um, we could not declare death in the field without a physician consult. And to be honest with you, I kind of liked that because that took the pressure off of me. But let's say we're 30 minutes into this and this guy, it doesn't look like it's going to be successful. I might look at this this woman and say, if we don't see a response here pretty quick. I'm going to have to call the hospital and I'm going to talk to a doctor and the doctor is going to determine whether we should continue or whether we should stop. And then if I made that phone call, I could hang up the phone and turn to this woman and say, I'm so sorry, but your husband has died. The, the organization that I retired from, the medics made those decisions on their own, right? So we would teach the medics that if we're 20, 30 minutes into this and it's not looking good, maybe we look at this woman and say, if we don't start to see a change here pretty quick, we need to start to think about whether we should continue or whether we should stop. And that way, if we get to the point where we're going to decide to declare a death in the field, when I turn to this woman and say, I am so sorry, but your husband has died, the intent of me dosing out the news was I don't get this high anxiety, emotional shock, these stages of grief that people that people go through, the anger, because basically we told her when we walked in, her husband was dead. She she knew that nothing was working. And as a matter of fact, in my experience doing this, some people, particularly parents of kids, if we're just busting our butt because 
and we're having these conversations. Do we transport? Do we not? Sometimes the parents, if we're dosing out the news and being honest, the parents will go, you know what? You guys have tried everything. You guys can stop. And that has happened uh, more than once. And it's like, wow. And it kind of makes our job easier. It's not fun. But if you're honest with these people, you you and, and it leaves an imprint that you care. And and what another thing that it does keeps them from getting into the crisis response of, of the high anxiety, emotional shock, denial, anger. If you're giving them these bits and pieces and you're being truly honest about it, most people know um, that lady when we walked into that house. When I told her he's not breathing, he doesn't have heartbeat, she knew he was dead when we walked in. She knew everything we tried wasn't working. Even though we were tried, we were working hard. We were constantly giving her updates. And I find that certainly softens the death notification a lot. Yeah. Well, for people listening, I'm sure they've probably noticed that you said your loved one has died. I had a, an episode, a great episode with Alex Jaber, who she's behind, I think it's Emergency Resilience. Amazing just as far as the verbiage that we use. They've passed away. They've transitioned. They've, you know, we, we, again, that's that kind of, cowardly is the wrong word but it, but it lacks courage as far as just saying your loved one has passed away they're, they're dead not even passed away they have died like you said so talk to me about that what have you seen as far as the evolution of the terms well, that we use I, I i i and you are absolutely right i used the term i'm sorry your husband has died or they they have died or they're, they're dead um because again Everybody has their own beliefs, their own terminology, and passed away to you and I might mean that they have died. Passed away might be confusing to somebody that has not, or they're in a better place, or these other crazy things, or, oh, your loved one's with God now. It's like, oh, my God, are you really? Stop, stop talking that way, right? They've died. I am so sorry, but your loved one is dead. Now there's no question on what, what we're talking about. So one call that haunts me a little bit in this environment that I was in as a lead paramedic, there was a point where I literally had to say, okay, this is an asystole protocol. You know, we're going to do the, the, the three rounds and we're, you know, we've got an ET in place. We've got capnography. If, you know, we're not going to have any, any rhythm change, I'm going to call it after three rounds. And that was to this culture that was used to just throwing them in the back of a rescue and waving them goodbye. And I refuse to do that. I refuse to give the family a bill. I refuse to take up an ER bed that might be needed by someone that you can save. But at the same time, they weren't being given this coaching. They, I think they heard me say that and that actually made it worse. So in that particular scene, regardless of the backstory, I made that situation worse. And it, it haunts me to this day because you don't want to add pain to the grief they've already felt. Talk to me again about um, this shift from, especially pediatrics, those are the hardest ones to call on scene, but this shift from the old load and go mentality. What are the benefits to the, to the, the family and the system when we have the courage, if we've you know, fulfilled all the criteria to make that decision on scene? Yeah, and let's be honest, pediatric calls will be the hardest calls we ever go out on. The hardest decisions you ever have to make, do we start? Do we not start? If we start, do we stop? I mean, all those things are, are bouncing around in our head. And yes, in the in the late 70s, early 80s, um, we transported a lot of dead babies. Um, just for, for a couple of reasons. Nobody wanted to tell the folks, right, that the baby was dead because we didn't know how to do that. Nobody wants to do that. And let's let the doctors do it, right? Now, 
here's a couple things that, that I understand. Um, when a doctor declares um, your child dead, in our society, we can assume that everything that was done was done. Because doctors in our society, we put on a higher pedestal than paramedics. Um, when a paramedic says, a young paramedic says, I'm sorry, your child's dead. We did everything we could. Um, we might always wonder, did they? Because they're young and they're paramedic, even though you and I know they did everything they could. Right. So that's a, that's a, that's a societal stigma we have. We put doctors higher than paramedics in, in the medical community. I also know that hospitals are better prepared to deal with grieving parents. Right? They have social workers. Um, they, they'll put them in a quiet room. Um, some hospitals out here, and I admire them, they'll bring a rocking chair out, and the parents get to rock their child um, I'm a huge advocate of that. That that's very very important. And you know, I used to talk about ooh, when I was teaching paramedics. Um, boy, I don't know if I'd want to try to facilitate that in the field, letting the mom rock wreck her dead baby. That that would be a, a hard thing to do. But then, you know, when I teach paramedics and firefighters how to dose out the bad news, got to be totally honest with the parents. When you when they when they hand you that parent or you pull that kid out of that crib, you be honest. Your child. His heart's not beating. They're not breathing. I, I'm going to be honest. Now we're, now we're going to go to work and we're going to go through our protocols and we're going to give the parents updates. I'm sorry, your, your son or daughter is not responding to anything that we're trying. Um, and uh, depending on your protocols, if you need to call and talk to a doc and say, this is what we got, this is what we're tried, you know, basically help me. Is there anything we're missing? Um, but in my experience, now, if you dose out the bad news, in many cases, the parents, and, and, and part of it, let's be honest, part of it is you have to read the family as well, right? And that's that's one of the things that, that I, I struggle with in pediatric protocols. They can't be black and white because you're not only reading the patient, you're reading the, the, the home, you're reading, you're reading the parents as well. And it's real easy for a doctor to say, you should have, shouldn't have transported this kid because obviously he's been dead a long, long time and everything you're doing and all you're doing is you're interrupting my, my emergency room. And I, I might ask that doc, number one, first of all, were you there? Because let's say I was the paramedic on that call, and yeah, we walk into there, and the parents take me into the nursery, and in my best professional opinion, that kid's been down a long time. I turn to the parents and say, I'm so sorry, I think your child's dead. And dad looks at me and says, he was crying 10 minutes ago, do something. Now what am I going to do? And so I, I have a hard time with pediatric protocols being black and white. Because when dad says BS, my kid's going to the hospital. He was crying. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to, I'm going to transport. Right? And so that's that's one of the things I try to teach organizations. Basically, be kinder and gentler when we're talking about particularly particularly pediatrics. But going back, my experience now, when you're dosing out the bad news and working with uh, in, in training and teaching firefighters how to do this, I've noticed a couple things. When I was working behavioral health in the fire service, anytime we had a child death, I would get notified. I would just make sure I'd go drive by that firehouse, make sure that the men and women were okay. Their heads were in the game. And I would hear, we were dosing out the bad news. It was the parents who said, you guys can stop. You've tried everything. Well, that's amazing. Amazing. Cool. And then I went out on a call or I went out to a station after a, a pediatric incident and I was talking to the lieutenant and he was saying, yeah, we ended up declaring a death in the field. Um, and he said, 
put mom in a rocking chair and I handed her her child and she rocked him. And I, and I basically said, man, are you, are you, how are you doing? Are you okay with that? Cause that's not easy to do. And he said, it was beautiful. He said, she needed that. It was beautiful. And it's like, wow, really? So who am I to say what's right and what's wrong out there? Right. So it's gotta be the best judgment of the people on the scene. I'm going to certainly give them all the tools that I can on how to facilitate that. So they can kind of stay focused but leave that imprint with the parents that they cared, no matter what they're going to do, whether they're going to transport or not, um, leave an imprint that the people in the house, the crew, so to speak, cared about what, what, what happened there and leave that imprint. And that's what you walk away with. You left an imprint that they cared. Well, speaking of the black and white calls, every pediatric code or pre-code that I ran as a paramedic was a result of foul play. Every single one which is, you know, horrendous. But uh, so again, now you've got this person who is telling you one complete story and you find out later that it's wrong or, you know, on the way there and you're examining the child, you're like, wait a second, these don't add up. And then the one, you know, that, that was actually in a, a code that we were handed at the front door um, ultimately ended up being abuse as well. So that's, that's, I think, an important thing to factor in. If you've got two loving parents and it was SIDS or God forbid a drowning in your case, you know, then there's the opportunity maybe for that closure at that that scene. But what if there's foul play? It might be safer for everyone to transport that child away and, you know, to pre preserve the evidence. I mean, who knows what happens if you, if you left, you know? So obviously you're going to want one law enforcement to come, but if God forbid that, you know, they were unattended for a moment, something you might be messed with. So it's a very important point that you made. Yeah, and that's, that's I have not, I've only ran on in my career a couple where, the majority of the baby calls they went out on were, were in fact SIDS or, or drownings in swimming pools and, and, and things like that. Only a couple of my career was uh, via abuse. And we didn't know it when we were there, that it was abuse, right? It is. You start putting the pieces together and law enforcement gets involved. And, whoa, whoa, the story's not adding up. Boy, those are just, they're horrible. And they just don't make sense. And boy, that's when crews start to have to do check-ins with themselves and each other. All I can do, James, um, I'm, I'm going to treat everybody the same as long as I'm there. I'm not the one that, that makes the judgment was this foul play or not, unless it was unless it was really, really obvious. And then there will be police there if it's that obvious. Um, we will never leave that kid by themselves with those parents there. Uh, but in most cases, not knowing, we find out later on the hospital, maybe the baby was shaken or something. I'm still going to leave or dose out bad news, leave an imprint that I cared because that helps me better emotionally to, to do that. Well, another thing that you talk about a lot, which, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes in my career, um, you know, was, was somewhat new to being a paramedic as well. I wanted to be right from the beginning, but I moved geographically all over the, the country. Um, but one thing that I always made sure I held on was that compassion, you know, but I would watch some of my peers and don't get me wrong. There was, there was levels of my compassion. There's spectrum definitely, but I watched some of my peers. I mean, extreme compassion fatigue. I know there were loving human beings that were just screaming at patients or, you know, just, just kind of, uh, an abandonment of the the real paramedic that they were to assuming that it was bullshit for example so talk to me about the importance of that compassion you know for us on, on any scene whether it's a, a death notification or you know taking care of a homeless gentleman that's rolled his ankle 
Absolutely. Um, and certainly compassion fatigue is very, very real and it takes its toll if we're not paying attention. Hence, like all your all your guests you've had on your podcast, it is about self-care, it's about enhancing resiliency, it's about knowing who your resources are. If you have a if you're starting to feel like off your game or you're getting irritable um at work or at home or you're getting irritable with your pay with your patients. Um uh, absolutely. Um so self-care is huge and recognizing that that's kind of when we started. I says a lot of what I teach is taking better care of ourselves and each other. If I worked on a medic unit and I start to recognize my partner starting to get more irritable and agitated than normal, um, we're, we're going to have a chat. And I would expect them or I would hope they would quid pro quo with me. If they see me starting to get agitated or irritable, they would call me out on it because we don't see that when it's coming from us. It takes one of our coworkers or a family member to say, well, well hang on. What's going on? Because you're kind of an a-hole when you walked in the door and that's not you not the person I married or it's not the person that I started this job with. Um, I think that's the start. That's, that's how, how we start all this stuff. But yeah, all the, this stuff is, is very real. The flip side of that, I've also learned that, you know, compassion fatigue, notwithstanding, I've learned that when I start to leave an imprint that I care, again, it pulls me into my, my frontal lobes where the pleasure centers live and it activates, it activates those. And, I have learned that I've walked away from scenes of, of this horrible tragedies, but walked away because we can't couldn't save them. They were dead when we got there, but you walk away feeling good about what you were able to accomplish with family members that showed up. And that feels good. Well, just quickly on that point, um, I was an absolute grim reaper as a paramedic. I mean, just a shit magnet. And literally in my entire career and i don't mean this you know to, to mock it at all but i never had a code save the last five years were in a, a theme park where they had the highest code save rate on in the nation because there are ad's everywhere and etc cetera, etc cetera. but that was just it and it wasn't i hope to god my terrible paramedicine but more i would get the gi bleeds the the brain bleeds you know all these things that you know that it already been dictated that they weren't going to survive but when I look at my mental health through my career, it never got to a deep, deep place. However, the inability to save was definitely, you know, a, one of the most crushing elements. And when I look at the way that we're taught in paramedic school and EMT school, and I'm sure in, you know, in nurse and doctor, etc., if you do intervention A, B, and C, the patient will jump up and they'll give you a hug and high five and they'll make you a cake next shift. Absolutely. So, so then when you go through your career and it doesn't happen over and over and over again, I think sometimes those high expectations can set you up for a fall mentally versus maybe, as you said, not only teaching death notifications properly, but also lowering that expectation, being realistic. Hey, when we do this mega code, just understand that probably 95% of the time it's not going to work. You know, and you are going to get those occasional ones, or if you're James Gearing, you won't get any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, 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 I've killed my share of people. If that makes you feel any better, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you hit it right on the head. It's a violation of expectations. That's what gets firefighters sideways in this line of work. When we go to work, we have these expectations that things are going to get better when we pull up, regardless of what we see when we get there. We're going to solve people's problems. 
People are better off because we're on that engine and we're on that medic unit. We truly believe that. We believe we can make organization out of chaos. And we believe that bad things don't bother us. Those are our expectations when you go to work. And you you have to have those to do your job. You have to believe that you're going to make a difference or, or, or solve somebody's problem. Otherwise, you might reevaluate your career choice. You have to believe that you can make things better. And then you're right. The, it, our employer sees that in us, that we can control stuff and we have to be perfect or near perfect. They hire us, um, put us through academies to teach us how to be more controlling and how to be more perfect and things like that. And then they push us out in the field where, crap, people are dying on us. They didn't teach us that in paramedic school. So expectations that good paramedics save people. This person died. What's that say about me? That's what gets us sideways. And, and to make it even simpler, because I'm working with firefighters, it's did something happen today that I couldn't have predicted when I went to work. And that could be going out on somebody I know. Okay, I, I, I can predict somebody going into cardiac arrest. I may or may not save them. But I couldn't have predicted that it was my uncle or my brother or, or my dad. It can be a, be going on a grinder. Yeah, if you work in a, you know, an area your first two has a freeway or something, you're going to get some grinders out there, but not my family or my, my you know, in-laws going, going on vacation. Uh, we can go on and on and on like that. It's, it's, it's the expectation has been violated. The problem didn't get better. It got worse. We've been having some crazy wildfires out here in the Pacific Northwest, wind-driven ones. And historically, that's a California type of a wildfire. And a couple of years ago, we had a wildfire come through into through populated areas, 40 miles an hour wind-driven fire. And you, you can't stop that. I mean, you, the news the news footage you're seeing abandoned fire apparatus burned up because you can't stop a 40 mile an hour wind driven fire in, in, in heavy timber. It, it can't be done. And people's file expectations were violated because we're taught, you know, an urban interface, we can stop that stuff and this is how you do it. Well, no, you can't. You can't you can't always make things perfect. And if you're a paramedic and people are routinely dying on you because some of them were dead before we got there, but you truly believe that good paramedics are going to save everybody. Well, you're really setting yourself up. Right? We we can only control what we can control. You train hard to do the best you can, but you also have to understand some people are still going to die. They are so sick or so injured, you can't do anything about it. And that that sucks. I don't know any other way to put it. I just shared a story earlier this week, and it was so heartbreaking. Uh, it was a paramedic, female paramedic in Canada. She ran on a call. Um, you know, there was, a, I think the driver was actually relatively unhurt. The passenger was very, very badly hurt. She worked the passenger, got him to the hospital. She was saying to her partner on the way back you know, how heartbroken she was. You know, some family is going to be devastated. Mm -hmm. And then she gets the Royal Canadian Mounted Police knocking on her door. And she turns out that was her own child that she'd worked on, her daughter. Oh, no. Yeah. So when you talk about you don't know what to expect, especially in some of these people that serve in the towns that they, they live or, you know, mm -hmm. that the freeway goes between their home and wherever, that this happens sometimes. And that's, you know, every parent's worst nightmare as well, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but to be the paramedic that worked on someone and then to find out that was your own child or you figure it out right there and then i mean i just i can't even imagine the compounding I, element i can't even, can't even imagine what that would be like just this couldn't be yeah yeah frightening horrible yeah horrendous well 
you know, we, we've we've kind of walked through. You've done the volunteer firefighter, and you transitioned to career. You know, you had this horrendous episode where you did you know, every per- parent's worst nightmare. You lost a child. I've heard you talking about your first time of reaching out through EAP and that kind of story. So walk me through, you know, your mental health health journey. You know, where where you started to identify within yourself, and then that initial. Um, I wouldn't say, you know, whatever it was, horror story or however you would define your yeah. first reaching out. I think like all firefighters, uh, we are the masters of shoving that crap down. Um, so we don't have to show emotions. We don't have to deal with it and things like that. We, we are the masters of that. Um, and I was very good at that. You put it in your backpack, right? We're, and we all have a backpack. And things that happen that I don't like, um, I put it in my backpack. And that tends to work until it doesn't because there's only so much room in that backpack. When I lost my son, uh, he died in 1987. Um, because of some of the other circumstances around all this, I stuffed it. I didn't grieve. I stuffed it. I had to be strong for my wife. Had to be strong for my surviving son. And so I shoved that in my backpack. And there was there was room for that there. And I thought I was doing okay. Um, I thought I was doing okay up uh, until year five because um, I found myself hating Christmases. Right. Because that's when this happens. Anytime a Christmas tree came up, it was a reminder uh, of that. But I was able to kind of put that aside because I still had a a little boy at home. And five years, I I remember pretty, pretty clearly, we are five years after I lost my son. My surviving son, who would have been, he would have been, he would have been 10 years old now, my surviving son. Um, We're, he's decorating a Christmas tree in my house. And he drops an ornament and I launched on him. Just, I'd lost it. And, and, and the look in his face, just, I, I yelled at him and he turned and he looked at me in, in, in shock. And I just sat there frozen, like, what the hell has happened to me? Right. I thought I had a handle on this, um, but that's when it kind of all kind of, I, I guess that's kind of when it, when it, I, I realized. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was mentally and emotionally. Um, and again, so this would have been uh, five years post 87. There was no such thing as culturally competent clinicians um, who've been identified to work with firefighters. My only option was an EAP. Um, so a couple a couple things that kind of also grabbed me on this. I told my wife I was going to, I had made an appointment with the EAP, told my wife I made an appointment to see a counselor. And the sad thing was my wife thought it was about her because I had not, I had never taken work home. I never talked to her about my job, about what was going on at work, all this. And so she assumed it was about her, which that hurt as much as anything else. Sweetheart, it's not about you. Well, anyway, so I went to this counselor, um, talked to her about my the loss of my son and she was actually pretty good with that because a lot of EAPs are good with grief but I started talking about stuff going on at work that's accumulating in me and and she told me to quit and that's really not what I wanted to hear and I did quit I quit seeing her right Um, I went back to work I was a company officer then um, really tight with my crew and I remember my first shift back after going to the EAP was after dinner I was sitting at dinner with my crew and I said, Hey, I'm just going to give you guys a heads up. I tried that EAP on our day off. Don't waste your time. They're a bunch of idiots. Right. And if you want, you want a message to get out fairly quickly, you know, television, telephone, telefirefighter. And now you wonder why nobody uses the EAP. 
And, um, you know, my story is not unique because I share that story a little bit about being told to quit the fire service. And I, I hear people go, you know, I was told the same thing, which just tells me they're not culturally competent. You know, in, you know, when I was in grad school, you know, you, you find out there's a stressor impacting somebody and maybe my job is to get them away from the stressor. Well, when it's a career ambition, it's causing the stress. Um, my, my thought with my therapist was I'm not enjoying going to work. Your job is to get me through that so I can get back to work because I love my job. And, and she just flat didn't understand that at all. Right. Um, so that's been my experience with them. Um, and that's also when I really decided to focus on mental health and go to graduate school and, and be a therapist um, when I retired, because I was able to retire at age 50. Uh, hopefully, I have a lot of life ahead of me. So I've been doing, I have private practice. I've been doing it for 14 years. Um, and um, I taught at the university, um, not too far from me, in the graduate school of counseling. And because of the way I teach and my message to get culturally competent people, there's a lot of firefighters and people in law enforcement now going to graduate school because they're thinking, hey, I can get out of here early. How can I pay this forward? How can I continue to help people? Because that's the way we're wired. And so we are very fortunate to start seeing a group of culturally competent clinicians coming out. Um, sad thing is, um, I work with maybe a dozen of them with the, in the Portland metro area. And right now, everybody's at capacity. There's, there's more people hurting than we have clinicians, which is really sad um, right now. But yeah, that's my experience with the mental health community. Um, thank God, um, when I was in graduate school, they made me, before I could graduate, they, not just me, they made all of my classmates take 20 hours of, per, of personal counseling before we could graduate. And that's where I found a, a therapist who was once a firefighter, who literally worked me through a lot of the stuff I was still hanging on with my kid because I had never grieved that, um, worked me through a lot of that and, and allowed me to um, put to rest um, my dis distaste for the babysitter, so to speak. Um, so I was able to finally let go of all that, and that was very, very freeing. And it took a therapist that actually knew how to treat first responder you know, stress problems, and that's what got me through it. Well, the number of EAP horror stories I've had on this show, um, and these are a lot, a lot of them are, are recent, you know, in the last, you know, three or four Bad. years. Bad. But it's, it's, it's sad when you hear, and I've had the same thing, I'm sure a lot of people have with their injuries too. Oh, you know, I'm, my knees are hurting. Well, just, you know, stop doing what you do, whether it's a sport, yeah. whether it's, you know, a profession, which is the polar opposite of what a physician should be doing. Well, let's figure out what's making it hurt. You know, there's muscle imbalances. You actually got some sort of structural damage that we need to fix. And let's figure out how to get you back. And it's the same with this mental health side. I've had people that were sent to marriage counselors and child counselors and all these different ones. And every response from the counselor bursting into tears or telling them to get out you know, which you imagine someone who's in crisis and they finally, finally got to sit in front of that person. What message does that tell them? I can't help you. The, the professional mental health world can't help you. So you may as well just go stick a gun in your mouth. You're done. You know, so it's, it's so heartbreaking that we're still hearing that message in a lot of these departments, because as you said, these men and women and children are being sent to 
you know, the, the kind of Russian roulette or whatever counselor shows up on the wheel versus someone who truly understands the profession that they do, the shift work, you know, the organizational stress, all these other elements that create that compounding effect to cause their personal mental health struggle. Absolutely. I agree 100%. I agree 100%. Yes. So you had that be bad EAP experience. You talked about going to become a counselor yourself. What about the interim? I mean, you were already reaching out. Were there any things that you did find that were working as you went along this journey in education? Um, I mean, before I finally found a therapist, I could pull, pull my head out of my butt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, of the, one of the things that the first therapist was able to do um, and, and, that's, and I'm, I'm not here to bash EAPs. They do an amazing job, but they are taught to deal with the problems that what the general population deals with, right? Grief and anger and finances and things like that. They just haven't a clue. What, matter of fact, I have clients come into my office who went to EAPs who they tell their story. And they look at their therapist and the therapist is crying. And now they got to put their medic hat on now and save their therapist. And that that's horrible, right? So one of the things my first therapist did teach me was about journaling and how important that was, right? That And when I journaled some of my, because where we get stuck in the grief process is we don't allow ourselves to show anger. And anger is an important part of grief. Um, but some of us feel like, how, do you, how, how are you angry if you've lost a loved one? Who, who are you angry at, right? But she taught me how to journal through that and place my anger where it needed to go. And that was that was quite freeing, yeah? Um, in grad school, and I became a peer counselor before I got into grad school and, you know, you're learning about resilience. So exercise became huge. Um, I'm huge with humor. I I'm, I'm drawn to people laughing and humor is such an important piece of my resiliency, um, to hang out with friends that, that make me laugh or watch funny movies with my wife, or just get on YouTube and watch stupid cat videos or whatever. Laughter is huge for me. Um, I'm an avid bicyclist. So I, when it's, when it's not pouring down rain or snowing here, I'm on a, I'm, I'm a road bicyclist. I'm on, I'm on a road bike. That is kind of what I would call my therapy. That keeps me somewhat sane. Um, that's, that's basically what I learned to do before I found a therapist that really, really did the EMDR and stuff on me to really get me through and, and you know, unpack my backpack full of crap. So as you progress through, I heard you talking about wanting to become the EAP of the fire service, not you specifically, but create that kind of go-to. So talk to me about, you know, you go through the, the, the educational path. You are a first responder yourself. When did that meld into the kind of hybrid that you then bring to the fire service today? Um, first of all, people come to me because they think I'm easy to talk to. And not only do I understand what they do for a living, I've actually done it. Right. So when they're when they're talking about their stuff, I can really, really track them. And another thing that I do is I, I have a if you've ever heard of the West Coast post-trauma retreat, I run a satellite of them up, up here in Oregon, which is a residential treatment facility for firefighters and law enforcement. And they are the worst of the worst. And we can take six clients at a time. And I load the room up um, with clinicians that have been vetted to be amazingly culturally competent. That's the only, that's the only clients they work with. And all my peers that are there have been clients. They get it. Right. They've all they've all sat in that other chair and have been there. Didn't think anybody knew what, what they had had been through. 
So that is so important. My, my, I guess my advantage I have is, is being in the fire service is you can tell me anything you want. We can talk about death and dead kids and, and listening to the medic that worked a child and then finding out later that it was her kid and go, Oh, that sounds, but I can still track you. It sounds horrible. And actually I can put myself in your shoes a little bit and try to imagine what that would be like. And, and that would be horrible to even think about that. But the thing is, I will, I will walk through you. I, 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 matter of fact, the last client I had at, at the, at a trauma retreat, um, he needed to go someplace. He was scared to death to go there. And I said, you know what? I will, I'll, I'll be with you the whole way. I will walk through that with you. And I don't think a lot of clinicians can do that. Right. And when we got all done, he was like, that's, I mean, really just so grateful, right? That somebody would actually just, just walk walk that path with him and, and go into that horrible place, horrible place he had to go through and work through it and then and then walk back out with him. I'd be happy to do that because I know how important that is for you to get back on your feet. And they don't teach us that in grad school. Right? Another thing they don't teach us in grad school, they, they really push, we don't self-disclose. The problem is the first responder is not going to talk to you unless you disclose a little bit about yourself. Right? And so... We really have to screen our clinicians that we use to, to work with first responders. They, they have to understand that. If a clinician doesn't say, well, I have experienced this, or I have broke down, and I know how horrible that is, or if, or typically what happens, a client will ask the clinician the question, have you ever felt that or had this happen? And the clinician will, will lock up or not say anything. The client will lock up. Then I'm not telling you unless you tell me. And that, that that's not going to work. Uh, in what I do here. So I have to have people willing to self-disclose and really walk these journeys with people. And, that, and if that's a civilian in grad school, then I encourage you to start doing ride-alongs. I will teach you about the culture. I will teach you what gets us sideways, these expectations. I have walked into departments and said, if you have an EAP that tells one of these employees to find a new job, then we will find a new EAP because that's not your job. Right? Your job is to get them back on their feet. And if they can't, let's, let's what do we got to do to rehab or put them at a different level of care to get them back on their feet. Because in my experience, in most cases, it's, it's doable. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a brain injury and injuries are treatable. Now with, with the whole mental health conversation, when I first was exposed to it about eight years ago now, you know, it was very much, Oh, it's what we see. And therefore, you know, we can work through it. And, you know, that's, there's been a huge evolution and with the diverse amount of guests that I've been able to have on here, you know, they've really opened my eyes to many, many layers of this, you know, this problem, this tower, this Jenga tower. One of the big ones that I was made of, made aware of probably about year two of this podcast through Jake Clark from Save a Warrior was childhood trauma. And so, you know, we, in the cancer world, we focus on carcinogens. You know, we don't talk about sleep deprivation and, and immunity and the humans, you know, resilient, human body's resilience. And I feel it's the same with the mental health conversation. A lot of people are still talking about, well, you know, you lost your child or you saw that horrible call, but we're forgetting the part, what happened to this responder the X amount of years prior to them putting on the uniform. So talk to me through your lens about that whole philosophy. This is one of those things that we often don't talk about because if a client came to my office and knew that we were going to talk about his, his dad or his mom, they probably wouldn't come to my office. But when they come to my office, we're going to talk about your dad and mom. 
And it was interesting when I was, I, I got on your website to learn who James Gearing was. And I listened to a few of your podcasts and every one was, I want to know about your family of origin. And I thought, okay, this guy's way ahead of the game here to go there. He's talking that with all the, all these people. You are absolutely right. Listen, the best firefighters out there are good because they're comfortable in chaos. They, they dr were driven to the fire service because they're comfortable in chaos. A good therapist would ask them, where'd you learn that? Where'd you learn to be comfortable in chaos? Where'd you learn to be the protector, right? Where'd you learn this stuff? And in my client base, now there are firefighters that came from wonderful childhoods, but the clients that I see, the ones that fill up early is because they've been putting stuff in their backpack before they took the job. And they learned to protect people. They learned to be comfortable in chaos. And now they come to these jobs and they they think they can protect everybody. And again, violate their expectations get violated just like everybody else. They tend to fill up before everybody else. And so when you, I'm working with a person that in fact has post-traumatic stress disorder, 90% of the time or more, it's family, it's, it's adverse childhood experiences that we need to actually clean up. You clean that stuff up and the rest of the stuff kind of goes, goes with it, right? I mean, we can start with the bad call because we're firefighters. And when we, when we talk about the bad call, um, I might ask, so what's that, what's that call left you with? Is it, is it, I have them come up with a negative cognition. I'm not going to give it to them. I, I'll make them come up with it. But it's, it's, did I feel overwhelmed or did I feel powerless? Or did I feel like I didn't have control? Did I feel like I'm not good enough? And once we find that, that theme that that call has left them with, then I will say, now, here's what I want you to do. Think back as far as you can at any other time when you felt that. And chances are it was before you got into the fire service. And maybe that's what we need to go after because that's what's giving energy to that call you went out on. It's feeding that call. And, you know, I use a, a treatment modality called EMDR. And if we go after that initial rock, so to speak, that adverse childhood experience, um, sometimes all those other rocks come out with it that that have those themes of powerlessness or whatever it is. Um, but you are absolutely right. Uh, adverse childhood experiences are huge in our line of work. Matter of fact, I had a client once say, gee, if it wasn't for abusive parents, there would be nobody to draw for to hire firefighters and cops. Well, yeah, you have, a, you have, there's, there's, there's something to say about that. Absolutely. Well, it's our foundation. You think I was on a truck company in California for a few years, you know, and you're you're sounding the roof. That's that's your lifeline. If that roof yeah. isn't solid, you can't do anything on the roof, you know. And I, that's what I think the problem is, is that we're walking in the career. Some of us with spongy roofs already, and it's not going to take much before you put a foot through. Yes, yes. My my fear is because the military thought about doing this, thought about giving uh, soldiers like the ACE test, adverse childhood experience test, before they would deploy them. And or I've had fire departments approach me: Should we be screening for this um, pre-employment? And uh, I, I that that's a fear that we're going to go that way. I, uh, what I would tell those organizations: No, you hire the best people. Don't worry about that. The thing is, you need to have resources in place to help those people if, if they fill up before everybody else. You have to have peer teams in place, internal resources of people they can talk to. You have to have identified external resources in the community of culturally competent people. You need to have guidelines and policies 
where everybody knows this is how we're going to handle a, a crew or an individual that maybe went out on a horrible call. These are some of the things that are going to happen and kind of take that stigma away. And then we talk about how to enhance resiliency. How We expect you, if you catch a bad call, you tell somebody. It doesn't have to be me, but we have we have peers and we have clinicians, and you can talk to either one of those, and nobody needs to know about that conversation. All we should be concerned about is you enjoy coming to work and your head's in the game. So I would say hire those people. They are the best employees you, you might ever find, but you need to have resources in place in case they fill up you know, before they get a chance to retire. Matter of fact, I am working right now with an organization um, where we are doing a 30-minute wellness check. Virtually every employee is mandated to do a 30-minute Zoom meeting with me just to see how they're doing. And it's all in confidence, even though I'm not doing therapy. It's just in confidence. How you finding the work-life balance? What are you doing for self-care? You know, how you sleeping? Those types of things to keep them to keep their resiliency levels up and to know who their resources are, where you come from. Do you know who your resources are internally? Do you know who your resources are externally? And those types of things so they can continue to, to enjoy and, and take the stigma away that if something's bothering you, you're weak or broke or you chose the wrong occupation. Now you're a human being. That's all that it means. Absolutely. Well, that, that kind of reminds me of, of something that I, I've been saying for about a year now. Um, I have a unique lens because I work for four different departments. I work Florida, then California, then back to Florida for two other ones. So that's four hiring processes. Each, I think three of the four, I had to do a polygraph. Um, and then all four, I had to do those crazy bubble psych tests that many of the psychologists have come on here and said are absolute dog shit. And I agree. I concur. So my, my kind of thing was, all right, well, the polygraph is smoke and mirrors. You, go you Google polygraph. It's basically trying to get people to confess. You know, it's literally, it's a magic trick. Um, the psych test is clearly not well received by the psychology, um, you know, community as well. But that money is already being spent. That is in the new hire budget. What I would challenge people to do is rely on your background check and your obviously your you know physical and written scores to ensure that you don't have a dirt bag that you're about to hire. Yeah, absolutely. And then take that same money that you are wasting on psych tests and polygraphs and put it into five counseling sessions during their probation so firstly you've got an amazing opportunity to offload what you probably already have in your your backpack as you call it and or now you've created a relationship with a counselor from day one because one of the biggest problems i see now is okay i get it you know mental health is real in the fire service now where do i go and that is a problem if you as a fire department say we have a go-to person here Anytime you need them, this is this is them, and they can refer you to someone who may be a better, you know, uh, personality fit if need be. But this is your go-to person. You've removed that barrier to entry. You've given them X amount of free sessions, and they now know I'm going to call Steve or Susan when I need to speak. Absolutely, that's that's absolutely, um, yeah. And and again, so yeah, we have to be more proactive about this. And you are right. Those listen, you if I'm. If, Thank God they didn't have those kind of evaluations when I got in the fire service. <laughs> um, but I got to tell you, if I was a, a new employee getting hired and you put an ACE test in front of me and start asking me about childhood abuse, I'm not going to probably not going to be honest on it. You don't need to know about that. My 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 crazy brain would say it's none of your business, right? Even though I understand their point of view that they're worried about me, but 
hire them. If I'm a good employee, if I pass your oral and your written and get through your academy and meet all your expectations, hire me. Just please have resources available because these are high stress occupations. We are going to see we are going to see dead kids and horrible things happen. Put resources in place. Yes, take those take those monies that you were talking about with that pre-employment screening, the, the ones that you were talking about, the polygraphs and things like that. Yeah, and put it into uh, preventive care. Screenings with a, with a therapist. Take that stigma away that it's you're broke if you're talking to a therapist. Talk to a therapist when you're healthy, for crying out loud. Wouldn't that be amazing? Just do a wellness check. Just to check in, see how we're doing. And and if they, they see something, you are starting to have trouble sleeping, okay, let me give you a few tools. Let's talk about this to, to calm the brain to get to sleep if that's what we need to do. And, and that's that's what the conversations have been about. Keep them healthy. Absolutely. Well, another kind of pillar of health that is just completely thrown away in our profession is sleep. Now, the sleep medicine world is something that I that really it was it was truly the first thing that drove me to create a, a podcast because I heard. Kirk Parsley talking about it. I was blown away. I'm like, my God, this is behind so many of the things that we struggle with. Um, and so he was one of my first guests as well. You've been, you know, a firefighter for a, a, a full, full career. You simultaneously transitioned into psychology world as a counselor. Talk to me about your perception of sleep deprivation in the firefighter. Well, sleep deprivation is, is huge. That is really the, the bane of the fire service. And uh, personally, I think if we don't get a handle on that, um, eventually we're going to lose the cool work schedules we have because nothing good happens after midnight if you're sleep deprived. And I can see a push in the future to put us on 12-hour shifts or even something crazier than that. And the labor is going to fight that like crazy because I would fight that like crazy. The problem is we're not getting good sleep and nothing good happens after midnight if we're sleep deprived. Um, so... I, I just finished writing a book with John Brunacini. The Brunacini's out of Phoenix, Arizona, on how to manage a fire company. And John brought me in to do all the behavioral health chapters on it. And John did a chapter on sleep. And really is pushing, you better get it. If you work in a busy station, you better have at least eight hours of sleep prior to coming to work. Because you're not going to get that at, at work. There better be safety naps involved during the day, regardless of what, you know, and that's going to be a fight with administration. Better be safety naps because when you're sleep deprived, more so for the company officer, it impacts their decision making process. Um, the firefighter will do what they're told, right? If they're sleep deprived, company officers got to be the one telling them. And if they're sleep deprived and unable to make those decisions, that's where people are going to get hurt. Right? So that that is huge. Where I usually come into the sleep stuff, I you know I have all kinds of grounding exercises to calm the mind to get back to sleep if you if you can. Where I see the biggest challenge uh, with sleep in the fire service is, is in, in alcohol intake, okay? Um, alcohol is a drug of choice in the fire service. Uh, it's, it's easily accessible. It's socially acceptable. You get an immediate response to an activity, and that's what firefighters like. I, you know, I cut a hole in the roof, smoke and fire comes out, man, problem solved. I defibrillate somebody, I get a change in a rhythm. I give them epi, I get a change in a rhythm. I take a drink, I immediately get a, a, a feeling of that problem solved, so to speak. And so I understand why it's the drug of choice. The problem is you can't get into deep, restorative, prepared to sleep with any alcohol in your system. 
And so a lot of what I talk about with my clients is, particularly if they're having trouble sleeping, I'll just, we'll talk about alcohol. How much do you drink? Um, and it's hard to treat a stress-related injury if there's any alcohol involved anyway, because a lot of what we talk about in the office gets processed in sleep. And if there's alcohol in our system, they can't get into that sleep that would, would cause the processing of the critical incident. And so sometimes I will just ask them, is it realistic that you could just give me a week of sobriety? I'm not saying you're an alcoholic or anything, but could you stop for a week? Because you're telling me you're not an alcoholic. None of my clients are alcoholics, even though they're drinking a lot. No, they're not an alcoholic. Okay, can you give me a week? And if they come back the next week and, and they're honest with me, so you haven't drank for a week, I got to ask how, how you've been sleeping. And, and a lot of times I'll hear, oh my God, I haven't slept this well in years. Well, you think there's a correlation there between alcohol utilization and sleep. So that's my that's my my thing mostly with sleep. Yeah, we have to get better sleep, but in many cases it's yeah, the busy firehouse, we can't control that. You're you're up all night or you're in a common dorm when the medic's going out, it's waking everybody up. I mean, all those things um I can't control. What I can control is on your days off, you're getting good restorative reparative sleep, the sleep where your brain gets a chance to process stuff that happened the day during the day, the sleep where your immune system gets to actually go to work and battle any viruses that you uh, you you were exposed to during the day, the sleep that actually repairs muscles and bones that that we beat up on, on shift. You can't get there with alcohol on board. It is biologically impossible. So that's the conversations that I I have with them, and if you if you don't aren't drinking and you still are having trouble sleeping, chances are I might be able to help you with that in in in, in tools to calm the brain, to get into a calm safe place and and get and get back to sleep. But those don't work if there's alcohol on. Yeah, and it's a vicious circle because a lot of people are you know are so tired they they feel like that's down regulating, and obviously it's not at all. And I'll point out the irony, as you've seen on camera, I'm sipping on the glass of wine right now. So just to, to underline that hypocrisy as we talk about this. Um, but I have actually gated back immensely and the driver is sleep, 100%. Like sleep, you know, div- d- drives my my consumption level. Um, with the, the conversation, though, I think the problem that I hear and I speak to obviously, you know, fire service around the world, but I've worked east and west coast. I've worked, uh, let me see, 48-hour work weeks, um, cause they had a, a Kelly and then, um, or 42 hour, no 48, excuse me, 48 hour work because it was a Kelly and then 56 hour for most of my career where I don't hear any conversation is the average civilian who's not waking up, cutting holes in roofs and pulling, you know, children out of fires is working a 40 hour work week, but it's like heresy to suggest that maybe we need to shorten the work week for the firefighter. And I think the Northeast and Boca Raton and, and some of these other, you know, isolated areas in, in the country that do a 2472 is the answer. Because I agree with you. And you look, look at our 12 hour shift workers, our police officers, our doctors and nurses. Are they svelte athletes a lot of time? No. So clearly that's not the be all and end all. I think there's a lot of a lot of things that we as firefighter paramedics need to achieve in a 24-hour period. To me, the answer is put an extra 24-hour between each of these shifts, make it a 42-hour work week, A, B, C, D. That is how you're going to make a huge impact on the physical and mental health of our responders. I agree with you more. Um, 
Uh, good luck doing that. <laughs> well, the irony uh, is, I, I, it's going to it's going to save them a huge amount of money. But you've got to well, have that you, leader you know mentality. As, well as I do, it's it's the upfront money in in that hiring. You know that that D shift and how that's going to work. I am a huge advocate of that. You are absolutely correct. Um, it's going to take a while. I mean, there's there's all kinds of different work schedules out there. So city of Portland is now, and I don't know what it is, but they're working a, a one on, I think they work a 48 and then they get a ton of time off. And, and I, when I first heard of that, I was talking to one of their people. I said, well, you know, that 48 is not safe in a busy house. It's just flat, not safe. But what they're doing is Oregon Health Sciences University is using the city of Portland fire department um, in, in a study on sleep deprivation in the fire service. So these, there's certain firehouses are getting their vitals taken when they come to work, getting vitals taken when they go home, and they're, they're involved in these sleep studies. So they're, they're really going to try to, to, so far the employees love it. I don't know. I'm going to, I haven't talked to anybody from a really busy house. Um, when I was at, uh, I retired from a, a, a department called Tualatin Valley, which is kind of the burbs of, of Portland. They were once investigating a, a 48 hour shift. And the folks who worked in the busy houses would say, well, we will do it if you give us that second 24 to, to sleep. And, of course, admin said, no, no. Um, and so they chose not to do that. They stayed with the 56-hour work week. Yeah, it's, and, and it's getting busier out there. Exactly. Right? So, it's the, you know, call volume's going up, and, and staffing is not. And it's it's... Yeah, 48 hours is, is just flat not safe. It's not healthy. It's not safe. No, no. I mean, the answer is just blatantly obvious. And you get, um, not only are you going to save money if you're the, the true leader that's doing something that you're not going to see the fruits immediately, but you've now got another entire shift that you can pull from in the wildfires, in the, the hurricanes, you know, and, you know, or if there's a pandemic, for example, now you have an extra group of people that can now rotate through. So it makes sense on every single area. It does. And, and sometimes the, the bean counters don't see it that way. Even when I go into create a behavioral health program, certainly there's some upfront costs to that. And there's some pushback and, I, and I'll just have sometimes I say, what's a suicide cost you guys? Well, what's that cost? I mean, how much money do you have in the, in the, in your employees? And when somebody takes their life, plus not just the cost of it, what that does to your organization, the labor management collision, when the union says you don't do enough and you say, well, I got an EAP, what more do you want? And it will make that organization dysfunctional because unfortunately that's, those are usually the organizations that I have to walk into to try to kind of get them back uh, operational. What's the value in, in that for crying out loud? Well, it's yeah. What's the value of somebody getting hurt? Somebody somebody falling off a roof because it just we're exhausted, right? Falling down a ladder and, and get disabled. There's there's they don't look at those costs. They look at the upfront stuff, right? Which is really really sad. Well, and one thing that I I kind of didn't factor in early days, and um, one of my guests actually reminded me is like. Well, we have the, all the costs that we talked about in medical retirement and um, workman's comp, but you're paying someone time and a half every single time for that person that used to be in that seat and you're paying them to be off work. So when you add it together, I mean, you're just bleeding money versus just being proactive. And as we, you know, whether it's the counseling at the beginning, mental health resources, strength and conditioning program, but most importantly, a shift pattern that allows these men and women to actually 
go home to their families, you know? And that's the other thing is we're so understaffed. Not only are you doing a 24-48, now you're being told, oh, you can't go home. You got to do another 24, which is just, now you're an 80-hour work week immediately. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Matter of fact, I, I think it was Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, upfront trained a peer team of, of physicians, physicians, peers trained to you know do crisis intervention with with other physicians that in the ED and stuff they get overwhelmed in, in, in Baltimore. And what they found is it saved millions of dollars a year in absenteeism and workbacks and things like that. Just ha- for a doc to have a resource, having a bad day, had a bad call somebody that they can talk to that knows what they do and can just acknowledge and normalize and remind them they're resilient to get back, you know, and start taking care of yourself. Literally it saved millions of dollars. Amazing. Well, speaking of resources, talk to me about Responder Be Well and, you know, and how are you trying to curate the the kind of ethos in the fire service now to start repairing some of the damage that was done just you know i mean initially people didn't know any better but now we're, we're evolving yeah we're starting to figure it out and uh we're starting to figure out that we do have a mental health problem with our by looking at the suicide statistics in the fire service and what's sad is when i when i when i train and i show a slide of the suicide statistics you have to look at that graph and go you know those men and women there thought they had the best gig in the world at one point in their life. So how the hell's, how's, how's, how's that happen? So when I go into an organization, I preferably, and I can't always do it, but in an ideal world, I would get on a training rotation. They would rotate crews through an auditorium. And when I would teach them all how to better take care of themselves and each other, right? We talk about um, how we see stress differently. So what that means is what may bother me may not bother you because of nature versus nurture and previous exposure and experiences. How close is the hit to my life? If, if I have a child at home, I might see a kid called differently than a firefighter and have kids at, at home, meaning we all see things differently. Hence, we got to pay attention to each other. Um, and then we talk about where stress comes from. It's not just calls. It's politics. It's finances. It's it's working with people, you know, that we don't care to be with for, for 24, 48 hours. Um, and then you throw in the stress of being a human being like everybody else. If you have families, if you have in-laws, you have sick kids, on and on and on. You get middle-aged, parents start to die. You deal with the same stress that everybody else has to deal with. And then you throw in the calls on, on top of that. So that's where the stress comes from. This is what it looks like so we can normalize it, the, the acute stuff, because people that are wired to be in control... Um, when something is happening that I can't control, like anxiety, I think I'm broke or I'm crazy or, or things like that. So we talk about what's normal. And then we talk about the way we have to be wired to come to work in the fire service, to put a uniform on. Whether And, and again, it doesn't matter if you're a career or volunteer. We're, we, you're, there, there's a predictability and personality that is drawn to this line of work, whether you're getting a paycheck or, or not. And... Some of those personality traits are need to be in control, need to be perfect. Um, we're wired to help. Um, all, all those kinds of things. We're the go-to person, all those kinds of things. And attached to those traits is our expectations when we come to work. People are better off. We can solve people's problems. Things don't bother us, make organization out of chaos. And all those things that we have to believe when we put our uniform on. And then we talk about, okay, one of those expectations is violated. You did go out on somebody at a bread and butter call and it turned out to be your kid and you didn't recognize them. 
It turned out to be a coworker, but there was so much damage to their face, he didn't recognize it. So an expectation has been violated. Now, what do we do? So I get them to, to do all that. And I teach firefighters how to have conversation, recognize a coworker struggling and how to have that conversation and either point them towards a resource or, or, or whatever, or get a hold of a peer and say, hey, I'm worried about this guy. Can you, can you stop by the station and have a cup of coffee with or something like that? So we talk about all that kind of stuff. We, so we lay that foundation out there. Then we hire internal or we, we train internal resources. We train peer teams. These, when I train a peer team, uh, preferably these are people picked by their coworkers as somebody that's easy to talk to, right? So they've already been predetermined. You would be the person that would be willing to talk to if, if I was struggling. So those people come in and we take them through. I, I, I teach a three day peer team class. Then sometimes in there, I will sit with administration and come up with guidelines and policies on how this is going to work in your organization. What what might red flag a battalion chief driving by a firehouse because they heard this call and just to do a check-in with that crew or calling a peer member, hey, this crew went out on their, their third or fourth pediatric death this week. Could you swing by and, and just do a check-in with them? So that there's guidelines and policies on that. Then you get a peer to the firehouse and a peer determines whether these people are going to stay on duty or not right are they are they fit for duty in, in the moment and if they're fit for duty um, i'm a big advocate of that peer giving them some homework to continue during their shift as far as physical activity and eating healthy and 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 having meals together and plugging in a stupid funny movie that night and laugh because laughter releases endorphins and catecholamines just take elevated vital signs and drop them to pre-insulin levels and and I make them write down, what are you going to do in the morning when you get off that you can look forward to? So your brain's thinking about something fun tomorrow, not thinking about the horrible call today. So I train peers on how to do that. And then the peers also, what if a person got a baby at home? I've been on three of these this week. I'm done. I'm done for the day. What's that going to look like in your organization? And I think it's cool to have these conversations now. So if it does happen... It's not arguing over, well, what are we going to do? Is it sick leave? Is it admin leave? Well, is it personal leave? Well, what are we doing with this person? No, have these conversations now. I'm not going to go into an organization and tell them, oh, you got to, you got to give them admin leave. No, I'm not going to do that. What I'm saying is your peers and your staff just need to know that if they have to take a vacation day, I can help facilitate with that on them. Yep. It's going to go against vacation, but I don't think, I don't think, I think it's safer for you to be home right now. And then they also have to figure out. If the person can't complete their shift, are they safe to put in a car to drive home? Because when you are out of balance, so to speak, or your brain's in crisis mode, you've lost the ability to process information by 400%. That's biology. You don't have control over that. And that's not safe for you to be on duty. Now, I'm also another big advocate of, is it possible if a crew has been overwhelmed, is it possible to pull them out of service for a short period of time and get them back into balance, so to speak? And that's what the peer's job is, to try to get them back cognitive. And is that realistic instead of sending people home? So those are all kinds of policies and guidelines I want to work through with that organization. So with the intent of keeping people operational is the intent behind the whole thing. But if somebody just flat can't, all right, what are we going to do with that person? Let's talk about that now before it actually happens. And, and then I just... Uh, sometimes with the peers, I, I, I stay in contact with them. We start identifying culturally competent people in the community so they have internal and external resources. Then I kind of stand back and let this machine work, and they can, they can use me as a resource if they have questions and things like that. Sometimes I'll re-engage every year or a couple times a year 
sit down with the peers. How are we doing? Anything we're worried about? What are the challenges? Let's work through them. And, and we move on. I also with peers do a lot of train the trainers. So when I go into an organization, so what's kind of the theme causing stress out there? Well, it's this. All right, let's let's do a class. You guys roll it out to your fire stations to keep people healthy. And that, that's kind of what I do. Beautiful. Well, where can people find more information online? Um, it's it's Behavior Wellness Resources is actually the website. My my, my So it's responderbewell.com, like you've been talking about, or responderbewell. You hit responderbewell.com, all one word, you'll hit the Behavioral Wellnesses Resources website. Brilliant. And then you mentioned the uh, retreat as well. So where can people find that if, they, if they're in the region and would qualify for that? Um, the retreat is managed by the First Responder Support Network out of California. So you hit frsn.org. That'll pop up their website. And then you hit the retreats. And that's the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. The mothership is in the North Bay area of, of California. Um, and when I retired, I was going down there four times a year. It's an all-volunteer staff. None of us gets paid a penny which I like that model. So I can assemble 15 staff members of clinicians and firefighter and law enforcement peers. None of us gets paid a penny. We get a week up from our personal life or our work because it's the right thing to do. Really, we, we were saving six six lives that week. And um, so when I retired, I went, flew down to California four times a year, participated in their retreats, uh, started learning the process um, and got comfortable enough with it. They allowed, because they were getting so overbooked down there because there's such a need for these things, um, they allowed us to open up a satellite here in Oregon um, to see how it would work. It's been very, very successful to the point where now um, Seattle has one, um, Kansas City has one, there's one in Indiana, there's one out of the Phoenix area. With the intent, it would be cool to, to every state should have one of these, these satellites um, to help the men and women struggling. So yeah, the retreat's a lifesaver. And it's really for people that just have exhausted all local resources where they're from. And they are just, we are worried about them. Um, they, they, they're, they're really, really struggling. Those are, those are the clients we get at the retreat. Brilliant. Well, you touched on retiring. One thing I want to just kind of put to you before we go to some closing questions. Um, the transition seems to be another area where men and women become very vulnerable. You know, they're leaving their tribe, they're leaving that sense of purpose, they probably identify as the uniform that they were wearing. Um, and then some of them sadly may be going to an empty home now, maybe that you know, a relationship is broken down as well. So firstly, what was your transition experience like? And then let's expand to you know, what you see from the other way with that process with the first responders. Absolutely. Um, I'm very fortunate because I really had a plan on what I was going to do when I retired. And I get asked all the time, do you miss the fire service? Well, I don't because I'm working with firefighters every day. So that's my advantage. I'm always hanging out with firefighters. I, and I still have my tribe, so to speak. Now, there's a lot of retired guys that are killing themselves. You are absolutely right. It's an identity thing. They, they you know, they they think when I retire, if they still have a, you know, still have a family. Um, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make love with my significant other three times a day. And just, we're going to, it's like, okay. Yeah. As Dr. Phil would say after a month, how's that been working out for you? Right. It's, it doesn't work that way. So one of the things that I do, I've been telling peers, find out who's within two years of retirement and start having chats with them, starting to get them to think, what are you going to do when you get off? Because I do have some retired clients and one of the biggest things is they don't think they have any value anymore. For crime any sakes, a person that's 
given their 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 life for 30 years you don't think there's any value in that and so i have to i have to try to point them or get them thinking about what what could they do to still give them some value and there's a lot of opportunities out there like that but you are absolutely right it's it's like that forgotten thing and, and it, it boils down to when i walk into a grocery store, I, I park a big red fire engine in the parking lot of, of a grocery store get out with the crew, walk into the store, we're in uniform, all the kids are waving at us, we're handing out stickers, we're everybody's hero, and that feels really, really good. You walk, you retire and you walk into the grocery store in civilian clothes and nobody, they not only don't know who you are, they don't care who you are. And if you if you put all your eggs in the firefighter basket, you are going to struggle, right? So I'm a big advocate of peers starting to, to counsel, so to speak, these men and women and talk about what let's, let's be honest, what's realistically not traveling the world and having sex three times a day because my wife would only tolerate that for so long. Um, what's realistic that you can do is still going to give you some value and some purpose out there. It's out there. You just, you, you got to think differently. Right. And the guys and gals that retire and do volunteer work or get involved in a trauma retreat as, 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 as a, as a volunteer, um, or or teach, you know, part-time in a community college, you know, paramedic or fire, you know, it's kind of stay in the business, so to speak, but it gives them themselves a sense of worth and, and they do a lot better in the long run. Well, I think one of the things we do terribly in the fire service as well is there's, there's just an assumed um, kind of philosophy that, well, when you transition out, you could teach in a fire academy. Because that's exactly what I used to do. The same instruments and the same gear. They forget someone calls three numbers on a telephone and you show up to mitigate their worst day. All the actual leadership qualities that are involved in that, whether it's problem solving, leadership, communication, et cetera, et cetera, can be applied to a smorgasbord of new you know, um, entrepreneurial or whatever it is, you know, some, something else. And you can still be with the same mission. Before you put that uniform on, you were a good person and want to make the world better. You know, what's sad, I think you talked about the angry people in the station. We need to think about, okay, was that guy an a-hole when we were in the academy together? Or did he become an a-hole? If he did, he that's probably the job and we really need to, to interject. If he slipped through the cracks and he was always a douche, then nothing's changed. But... You know, so you've now created this amazing array of skills. What do you want to do next? Because you can do it. Because you did something that 99% of the population could never do. You're absolutely correct. And that's the, exact, that's the conversation that, that I have with these men and women. You have a ton of value. Absolutely. Every community now has homeless shelters, um, uh, abused children centers wouldn't it be cool if a retired firefighter walked into a, a a home that had kids that had never had an adult be consistent and fair and just sit and listen to them and you walk in there and you sit down and you pay attention to them and you listen to them because they've never experienced that before is there value in that are you kidding me come on that's that's the way i try to get them to think and it, and it, and it can be fixing bicycles for kids i don't care what you're doing but you have a ton of value and, and the big thing is, you know how quickly things change in people's lives because you got a paycheck for that. You know how valuable life is because you got a paycheck because you saw the, the alternative to that. You have a ton of experiences and value. And, and value right? 
So we just need to find that match for you. It does it for you. It's out there. You just got to look. Absolutely. I think the, the right retirees, you know, when, when again, we take a step back, you know, you look at the veteran community, you know, they have the VA, they're, they're always going to be a veteran, always going to feature in statistics. When that bay door comes behind the responder, they could blow their head off in the parking lot down the street, and it's not a firefighter death anymore. You know, so they really are forgotten. It's up to us as the department, as you said, to prepare them before they go and keep them involved. I mean, one of my guests, um, Walt Lewis, was saying, what an amazing wealth of experience. Can we not bring them in as contractors in the training department? Now, we always have, you know, sometimes that's the worst person that gets put in the training department. What about bringing in some of your 30-year guys and girls that just walked out back to continue teaching? Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. That would be really proactive. That would make me smile. I would love to work myself out of a job. I really would. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'd love to just hit some closing questions before I let you go, if that's okay. Sure. So the first one I'd love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can pertain to our discussion today or completely unrelated. I, well, there's, when, I, when I read non-work-related stuff, it's for me to escape in my brain. I find that very therapeutic to just pull up a good book. Um, certainly I'm a, I'm a little biased. The book I just completed with John Brunacini, it's everything I wish I would have known as a company officer and how to take the care of, of my people. And John did an amazing job putting that together. Um, so it's, it's called managing a fire company. I think that is an amazing book. And we had an amazing group of, of people from around the country and Canada validate it for us. Um, literally go through every chapter with us, make sure it was easily readable, make sure it was applicable in the fire service it's about keeping john's motive is is handling stuff at the lowest level right keeping hr out but knowing when to call hr as well right and then my job was to make sure that we that the company officer takes recognizes and takes care of the mental health of 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 their people right so i think that is an amazing book um god i hate i hate just talking about my stuff my scenes of compassion i think is really the bible of how to how to deal with people who are going through horrible, horrible times. And I don't know of another book out there that talks about that. Um, that creates a, those, those conversations, you know, talking to a mom who's just lost her child and mom's not going to accept that her child's dead. How do you have that conversation? I was not ever taught how to do that. In those days, that's a bad day for me when that happens. And I really, I, I put down from basically from experiences because there's not a lot of things to research on that. Um, I think it's an easy to read book and it gives people, I get, I get compliments from that book all, all the time when I travel, if they've read the book that it really, really helps people, which makes the job easier, less, less stressful. Um, there is because behavioral health is becoming such a, uh, a big thing in, in first responders. There's just a ton of books out there. Um, a ton of a, a great books. Um, Ellen Kirschman um, writes books. I love a cop. I love a firefighter. Um, those are great books. For you and, and your mate, because the personality that makes us really, really good in the firehouse can make us challenging in a relationship, believe it or not, <laughs> right? And so when we write about it and your spouse gets to read about that, it normalizes who's walking in the door when they come home tired and, and, and cranky in the morning. And it's not about them. It's just about what the career can do to us sometimes. And uh, um, so, yeah, there's... There's books, but it's, those types of books are becoming more and more prevalent just because of the suicide rates being recognized in, in our line of work and, and 
thankfully, the fire service is starting to recognize that maybe we do have a behavioral health program when you start looking at. It would be so sweet in the way you're talking. Let's take some of that money we've been using on some of these screenings and let's let's be proactive with it. And let's just give them a, a few sessions in, in academy, even in academy for crying out loud. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, let's do wellness checks every year where every employee has to call into somebody's no therapy but just to check in see how you're doing remind you of of your resources remind you of self-care how you how you dealing with the work-life balance what can we offer you and things like that let them know and, and what we're doing is taking away that stigma um of you got to do this stuff all by yourself right because that's what we try to do and it doesn't work very well so Sorry, not really any big recommendations, but Google firefighters and stress, man, and it's all going to be there. Beautiful. All right. Well, then what about a film and or a documentary that you love? Ah, there's a new documentary just came out of Tacoma, Washington. I, I, I think it's I think it's entitled The Calls We Carry, I think. It just came out. I've just watched it. To be honest with you, I got involved in a documentary that they've they've done a trailer on it. It's not, and it's just on suicides in in, in the first responder professions. We actually interviewed um, families of firefighters that had killed themselves, and then they interviewed some firefighters that have made attempts and and didn't complete. Um, and then I got involved in that project. The thing with that project, the trailer's out. They're kind of holding that close to their 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 the breast, so to speak, with the intent of trying to find uh, investors to make a full length, like a, a two hour documentary out of it. So I don't think that documentary is out just yet. They've been showing it on the West Coast a little bit, um, the 20 minute version, just trying to get investors for it. But it's, it's not out. But um, the Tacoma one is worth is worth a watch. It, it, it interviews some of their employees that have, have struggled and they're being very honest about it. Beautiful. I'll have to watch that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, my goodness. There are, you know what I would do? I would contact West Coast Post Trauma Retreat through FRSN.org because what I have found is when people are struggling, they don't want anybody to know. Right, they hold it pretty, pretty, pretty tight. They don't want anybody to know, and they isolate. They don't want, they don't want you to see them broken, all this other stupid stuff. Once they get treated and they get healthy, they want to talk about it. And I think if we got to hold a West Coast post trauma retreat and got to hold of one of their peers, because all my peers have been clients, um, and said, so "Would you be willing to do this and talk about your journey um, of getting kicked?" So low that you ended up having to go to this residential treatment center, but you did it, which is the bravest thing you probably ever had to do in your life was to say, I can't do this by myself. And you did the work, recovered and got healthy, healthy enough. If you choose to go back to work, you can. If, you know, if your family's repairable, we'll give you this, the, the tools to re-engage with your family. Point you to local resources wherever you come from. And then we want you to come back and help us someday with six new people that don't think anybody knows what it's like to be them. Get one of those people just to share their story. I think that's that has a ton of value. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? How do you offload your, you know, accum accumulated trauma by doing this profession now? Uh, well, uh, number one, my bicycle. Is, is 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 my therapy. Um, I have a group of 
friends that if I'm having a day that's not turning out the way I wanted it to, um, literally, it's a phone call. Let's meet for a cup of coffee, and I cough that up. So it's now it's at the at the table in the coffee shop, and I'm not carrying that anymore. So I have those kinds of friends who who I've been using for years. They know exactly that when I give them a call to talk about stuff. Okay, let's get together. Let's have a chat about it. And then I have a group of friends that when we get together. We literally laugh till we cry. Uh, it's embarrassing for our our spouses sometimes. But boy, when when I when those guys the, the and, and I play music with them, so I guess that's another bit of therapy. I've been playing. Uh, I play in a bluegrass band. I've been playing with the same guy since 1980. Believe it or not, really, same, yeah. And it's those guys that when we get together, man, we literally we laugh until we get, we're we're shedding tears. And when we have a practice or we're going to have a meal together with our families, I I just I, I can't wait. I look so forward to it because again, laughter is is so important in my life. So that's that's how I do it. Plus, I have therapists. The therapists that I work with at the trauma retreat, um, we we all really keep because we're all doing the same thing. We really keep close tabs on each other. And any of those people is is easy to reach out, email, and the next thing you know, we're talking on the phone. So we we do really pay attention to each other and, and watch each other because we know we know the toll of what we're doing for a living today can have on us as well. We people don't come to our office to talk about happy sunshiny and rainbows and, and things like that. They, they come because they've experienced something really, really horrible in their life. And it's our job to kind of help them process that and get them through it. And sometimes those stories, they, they sometimes I feel like there could be a shelf life on what I do for a living. But sometimes I just, I, I get really exhausted and then I have to, I have to use my tools, get on my bike, call people, right. Find somebody that, that makes me laugh. And I, and, you know, I have a wonderful support from my wife as well. Beautiful. Yeah. As far as that second hand, my wife just lost her best friend. So I spent the last week in Ohio and yeah, I mean that, you know, obviously some of the stories I hear on here are pretty, pretty heavy as well. But, um, you know, my best friend actually is going through some stuff himself. And then my wife lost her, her, uh, her beloved best friend. And so I went to the family and obviously they're all grieving as well, you know, and it, and it is, you, you want to be that strength and that shoulder, but you got to remind yourself, okay, I gotta, I gotta offload this stuff now because no, it wasn't directly your trauma, but it's, you know, secondhand and you know, that's a real thing too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I travel a lot. Um, and my wife allows me to do that. She knows how important this is to me. And so she's, that, that's, you can't deal with that kind of support on, on our home front as well. So, Absolutely. All right. Well then just to make sure I haven't missed anything, you mentioned the website. So are there any other places online that people can find you? Um, no, you hit my website. There's all kinds of articles that are certainly resources through anything to do with behavioral health. I've probably written about it in the fire service in an, in an article. Um, there's another podcast that I've done with this is Christy Warren, I believe the firefighter deconstructed. Um, and there, there's resources there. You have the frsn.org, which has got a ton of resources for first responders. That's where the West Coast post-trauma retreat comes from. Um, other resources are the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, which I believe is icisf.org. Um, again, they're pretty much their mission is for responders to keep them, keep them healthy. Yeah. And big picture is you take care of yourself and each other. Right. Absolutely. Well, Tim, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been yet another great conversation. I'm amazed by all these incredible humans, some of whom obviously are introduced to me by other people. So again, thank you to Steve. But 
you have yet another unique lens. I mean, not only your journey through volunteer and career fire service, but your own personal loss and then what you did with that loss and then what you're doing now for this profession that you love. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. You're very, very welcome. It's my honor to be asked to do this with you. It's nice to meet you, Phil.